Turn with me, Will, if you, if you will, to uh, John chapter 20, starting in verse 19. That's where we'll be this morning. And as you turn there, let me just give you a little insight into what it's like to be a pastor on Resurrection Sunday. The week or two before that is, at least for me, a really exhilarating week, an exciting week, because what in the world are we going to go to in the Bible? Where are we going to go? to look at this most miraculous event, this most important event in all of Christianity, the resurrection. And I'm going to tell you that the choices are numerous. We could be in the Psalms. There are a number of Psalms that we could preach from this morning. We could be in the book of Acts. Obviously, we could be in the Gospels. We could be in Revelation. But I'm going to tell you this morning, we are going to talk about something that the entire Bible points to. Starting in Genesis 3.15, we have subtle pointers that point us to this very day. And so the whole of Scripture is pointing us to the resurrection of Christ. That is what all of our hope is based upon. That is what our faith is based upon. And you will find it in every nook and cranny of the Bible, a pointer to the reality of the resurrection. And so this morning, in all of these numerous choices, I feel like... Uh, In my preparation for the last two weeks, the Lord has pointed us to John chapter 20. And we will be looking at the account of the resurrection as John gives it to us. And we will look very, very specifically at our dear Thomas. And what he does with this startling truth that Jesus Christ has been raised from the dead. So we'll be in John chapter 20, starting in verse 19. And read with me, if you will. We'll read just the first part of the text for this morning's sermon through verse 24. Here's what John writes under inspiration from God himself. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. And then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. And Jesus said to them again, peace be with you as the father has sent me. Even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of anyone, they are forgiven. If you withhold forgiveness from anyone, it is withheld. And now verse 24. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. We'll pause right there for a moment. There's a lot that we could look at in that passage, and perhaps we will, given the chance one day. But I just want us to look here at how John gives us an account of Jesus' resurrection, his appearance to the disciples out of nowhere in the midst of them being locked up in a room for fear of the Jews, And his word is a message of peace. And he gives them evidence that he is the Christ who was crucified. And then John is inspired to give us a focus on the absence of Thomas. So John takes the lens of the camera and zooms in right here in verse 24 on Thomas. And that's the direction that we're going to go this morning in this sermon. And I want you to see what we learn about Thomas. But first... We need to understand Thomas prior to this evening that he's going to encounter the risen Christ. We don't have a lot of details about Thomas and his life from the Bible and from the Gospels. In fact, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they only cite Thomas's name when listing out the 12 disciples. They give no insight into Thomas and who he is. But the Apostle John does. For he was inspired in John eleven sixteen to tell us something very, very significant about Thomas. Something that I love about Thomas. Something that I want to be true for all of us as we try to be like Thomas in this. And so Thomas, being one of the twelve, he's known as the twin. We don't know who his twin is. The, the twin's not cited in Scripture, but he's called the twin. And here's what we know. We know that his love and his commitment for Jesus Christ is robust. It's extreme. It's all in. It's sold out. And let me give you two passages that will provide evidence for this. Here we go. First of all, John 11, starting in verse 7. Now let me set the table for you. 
This is the account where Jesus returns to Judea to resurrect a dead Lazarus. And Jesus knows that Lazarus is dead. He stays away from Judea for a time so that Lazarus can be good and dead. And then he says, and that's, that's hilarious, but he has a purpose, doesn't he? He has a purpose for staying away, and that's so that he can show people his glory and he can show the glory of God and the ability of God himself to raise from the dead. But when Jesus says, okay, it's time, we're going to go to Judea because we've got to resurrect this one who has fallen asleep, the disciples protest. And they say, no, Jesus, we can't go there. The last time we were there, they were ready to pick up stones and kill you. But Thomas, Thomas shows us a devotion to Christ that I say we all need to have in our lives. Because Thomas says in verse 16 of chapter 11, he says to his fellow disciples, let us also go with Christ to Judea that we may die with him. Thomas is bold. His love is not half-baked. It is all the way sold out for Jesus Christ. And he says, I'm so determined to follow my Christ that I'll follow him to death in Judea by stoning if need be. Thomas's worst nightmare was to live without Jesus. His worst nightmare was to live without Jesus. I want you to hold that thought. Second evidence, second testimony to Thomas and his devotion to Christ is over in John 14. Let's look at verses 1 through uh, 7, maybe 1 through 6. Jesus is in the upper room. He is sharing with his disciples on the last evening what is going to come of him. And here's what we read in John 14. Let not your hearts be troubled, Jesus says. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way where I am going. And here comes Thomas. Here comes Thomas. Thomas's devotion to Christ, his commitment to Christ, even brings about some worry that he would be separated for any amount of time from his Christ. Thomas says in verse 5, Lord... We do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? He's desperate. He wants to know, okay, you're going away. I don't like the sound of this, but you've got to give us the way to where you are. Because I've got to get there. And Jesus replies with our bold John 14, 6 verse. I am the way, the truth, and the life No one comes to the Father but through me. Jesus says, I am the way, Thomas. I am the way. So here we see again that Thomas doesn't want to be separated from Jesus. Separation from his Christ is his worst nightmare. Do you hold Christ that tightly? Learn from Thomas here. Learn from him. Hold Christ tight and say, I must be with Christ through all that I experience in this life. So from these two views, and this is it. This is all we get in the whole Bible about Thomas until the passage we're going to read in a minute in chapter 20. From this we see that Thomas is all in in following Jesus. He's all in. But then we read this. Turn back to John 20. We'll pick up in 24 again. Now Thomas... One of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see his hands, the mark of the nails, and place my finger in the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. I will never believe. Thomas's worst nightmare happened. Jesus dies. Jesus is removed from him. Thomas is no longer able to walk and talk and sit under the teaching of Jesus and view his miraculous healings and walking on water and 
creating loaves out of very few to feed thousands of people. All of that is gone. He has lost his Christ, or so it seems. So his worst nightmare has happened, and he is distraught. And it's right here that I want to defend Thomas. I want to say to us in the church, let's lighten up on Thomas. We know him as the doubter, right? We love to tell jokes about doubting Thomas. But I want us to lighten up on Thomas this morning. And from here on out. Because Thomas is distraught because he is not in the presence of Jesus Christ, the God-man. That's a good reaction, (laughs) That's a good reaction to have. To be separated from Christ is to be in a very desperate strait. That is not a good place for anyone to be separated from Christ. And Thomas here feels the whole truth that in the moment he is separated from his Savior. Thomas was not alone in this. All the disciples are doubters. Thomas is not the doubting apostle. They all were. Jesus enters the room and has to show them the marks in his hand and the the wound in his side. And then it says they believed. So they all doubted the resurrection. We have in the scriptures here that they were huddled up in a room upstairs with the doors and windows shut for fear of the Jews. And this is on Sunday night, Resurrection Sunday. They doubted, just like Thomas, lighten up on him. And I dare say... You and I would doubt as well. You and I might very well doubt as well. And on one hand, we can understand why Thomas doubted. We have the benefit of looking backwards into true history as we look at this precious Word of God. And we we get to see back before this crucifixion and resurrection. We get to see afterwards. And we have Scripture that tells us what's to come. But these disciples that lived in that moment, man, they lived in extreme times. Times like have never been seen on the face of the earth before in the history of humanity. And here's what they saw. Seven days before this night, they saw their King Jesus, King of Israel, ride into Jerusalem on a donkey. And people proclaiming Him as King of Israel and hailing Him as the King who's going to save us. Now, we learned Wednesday night they were totally confused. They thought He was going to save them from Rome and Caesar. But the truth was He was going to save them from their sins. They had a supper with Jesus in an upper room on a dark Thursday night. They didn't understand totally what was going on. Jesus is saying, one of you is going to betray me. Judas leaves the room and they don't understand what he went out into the dark of night to do. They don't understand. And then they witness Judas betraying him with a kiss and soldiers arresting him and him being dragged off to trial. And then they witness. Oh, they witness the cross of Christ. Nailed to a tree. And do you understand that the Scriptures have told them these these Jewish disciples knew their Scriptures well? And they knew that the Bible said, Cursed is a man who hangs on a tree. It was the worst, most humiliating, most shameful death anyone could ever experience. His body was beaten. His beard was torn out. His clothes yanked off and gambled for. He's dead dead. They watched him give up his spirit. They watched him say, it is finished. And they took that to mean it's finished. And Thomas says, no, it was finished. I can't believe that unless I see evidence. You know, in their mind, Messiah's win. Jesus is the Messiah, the promised one, the Christ. And they win. God promised a Savior that would deliver them. And they saw what they thought was defeat on that cross. And so they doubted. And they mourned. And they huddled up in hiding in a dark room, not wanting to be discovered by the Jews who had him killed. So on the one hand, I can understand the doubt But on the other hand, I can't. 
(laughs) These disciples have walked with Jesus through thick and thin, through all kinds of trials and tribulations. They've seen all kinds of miraculous things that you and I have never set eyes upon. They've seen all kinds of Old Testament Scripture fulfilled to the letter. And they even heard this from Jesus Himself. And I want to walk you through this. Turn with me to Mark 8. Man, I want want you to see the drumbeat of Jesus' teaching into the hearts of these disciples. But we're going to see the teaching didn't penetrate into the heart. It hit the brain and then it left with these disciples. In In Mark chapter 8, 31, let's pick up in 31. Jesus foretells of his death. He tells his disciples, hey, I'm going to a place and it's going to be ugly and some things have got to happen. And here's exactly how he puts it. They went on from there and passed through Galilee. And he did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, here it is, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days, he will rise. Jesus is saying this to his disciples, to Thomas. Verse 32, but they did not understand the saying. And they were afraid to ask. You know what? I just read I just read 931. I apologize. But we're good. We don't have to read that now. Look over in 831. Okay? Rewind for a minute. In, in 31 of verse 8, And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And look at verse 32. Mark says, and he said this plainly. Jesus foretells his death the first time, and he is very plain. This is not tricky. There's not a formula here to be figured out. Plainly, the Son of Man must be delivered up and die, and after three days, the Son of Man must rise again. Thomas and the apostles, the disciples, they heard this. But we're going to see evidence that it didn't penetrate into their heart. And I urge you this morning, do not hear the word of God preached and let it go right here and out here. I want it to stay in your mind and then you need to pray it down into your heart. I'm trying to use some language here to show you this has got to penetrate into your very being. So I've prayed for you all week. Don't hear these words and say, okay, that was good. Now let's move on. Internalize these words. Ingest them into your heart. These disciples didn't. Then we go to chapter 9. Let's look at that. He says it again in verse 32, but they did not understand the saying and they were afraid to ask him. Just a quick aside, if you don't understand anything you hear this morning in this sermon, don't be afraid to come ask. We're talking straight from the Bible. We're not giving you human logic here. Straight from the Bible, and the best degree that we can, if you don't understand that something is said in this word and in this sermon, I would love to sit down and explain to you what's being said. Let's look at the third instance, just over in Mark 10. You see this? Mark 8, Mark 9, Mark 10. Jesus three times foretells of his death. In Mark 10, we start in verse 33. Jesus says this, See, we are going up to Jerusalem. And the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn Him to death and deliver Him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock Him and spit on Him and flog Him and kill Him. And after three days, He will rise. Three times. You can see these three times in Matthew's Gospel and in Luke's Gospel as well. Three times. Jesus is plain. I'm going to go be crucified. I'm going to die. I'm going to be in a grave. But on that third day, that tomb is going to be empty. I am going to rise. And that's a big deal. To some degree, these disciples had eyes, but they did not see. They had ears, but they did not hear. Right? We've heard that passage. That's what these guys are experiencing. And I pray that you will not be like them on this issue of the resurrection and the truth of Jesus Christ dying in your place for your sins so that you might be right with God. Have ears to hear that. 
But let that hearing penetrate into your heart so that you walk away changed and right with God through His Son, Jesus Christ. Have eyes to see this empty tomb, to see it right here in the Scriptures, and let those eyes drive that truth of what you're seeing into your heart so that you're changed and you're called a follower of Christ. You need Him for now and for all of eternity. You know, here it's where we begin to see the importance of the Holy Spirit. I'm not going to camp out on this, but if you remember back in John, Jesus breathed the Holy Spirit on them. And when he breathed the Holy Spirit on them, he said, receive the Holy Spirit. And man, that's that's a unique passage of Scripture I'd love to spend some time on. Maybe we will get to do that in the near future. But these disciples do not have the Holy Spirit. That's why they have eyes, but they don't see and ears, but they don't hear. They need to be supernaturally changed inside their heart to receive the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You do, too. I do, too. The Holy Spirit is key and Jesus is giving a precursor to the Holy Spirit here. And in Acts chapter 1, we'll see where he gives fully the Holy Spirit to these disciples so that they can boldly boldly speak on his behalf and serve on his behalf. So we have here some doubting disciples, and yes, a doubting Thomas. And I want you to understand why the doubt is there. I want want to explain to you right here and now the importance of the resurrection. Because these disciples understood that this dead Jesus was not a good thing. This was the ultimate worst thing that could possibly exist in all of history is a dead Jesus. And so this morning I read, right after our time of offering, I read for you from 1 Corinthians chapter 15. It is a huge, massive section of Scripture that speaks to what we celebrate on this day. And Paul put it like this. I'm going to summarize. I'm not going to read everything that I read. But we need to understand that the resurrection of our crucified Christ is the ultimate aspect of Christianity. It's the ultimate truth. It is the bedrock of Christianity. Because if we have a dead Jesus and not a resurrected Jesus, we don't have Christianity. And we are meeting here in vain. Listen to Paul tell us this. Paul says, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, and that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. That sounds exactly like what Jesus said in Mark 8, 9, and 10, right? Sounds exactly like what He said. And then Paul tells us that He appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, And he appeared to the twelve. And then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, many of whom are still alive at the time of this writing, though some have fallen asleep, he says. And then he appeared to James and to all the apostles. And then he says this. So he states the truth that Jesus told his disciples was coming. He's stating it now in retrospect, looking back and saying, it happened, Corinthian church. And then he says this. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection from the dead? For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And here comes trouble, if that's true. And if Christ has not been raised, Paul says, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Jesus died on a cross for our sins. God said, if you sin, the wages of sin is death. Jesus never sinned, He dies on a cross, and He pays for our sins. And if we believe in Him dying on a cross in our place, we are forgiven for our sins because God has met the death penalty that He proclaimed on man for sin through Christ. He is a substitute. He hung on the cross instead of you, instead of me. And so He's paid the penalty for sins. But if He's dead... We're in trouble because the wages of sin is death. He has to overcome the wages of sin. He has to overcome death. How do you overcome death? You rise from it. You rise from it. That's why I'm telling you this empty tomb is the most important aspect of Christianity. If that tomb was not empty, then death was not defeated. And our sins are still upon us. And that's what Paul tells us 
in 1 Corinthians 15. So I'm, stand, I'm telling you the greatest news ever, church. This is the best thing you could ever hear. Your sins have been paid for and your sins were defeated because Jesus rose from the dead, the wages of sin. That's good news. If you don't know that good news, I urge you to start considering this and embracing this and internalizing this so that you might believe and have what the Bible calls eternal life in the presence of God. And Paul goes on, And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. And then he says this, If in Christ we have hope in this life only, if all we've got is hope in this life and that's in Christ and He's dead, we are a people that must be most pitied. In other words, I'm standing before you this morning. We have gathered to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And if that's not true, we are a joke. We are to be pitied. We are to be scoffed at. We are imbeciles. We are idiots. (laughs) Okay? Paul says our faith is all based upon a resurrected Christ. And I'm not scared to tell you that. I'm not scared to put all my eggs in one basket. (laughs) I'm not. Because this is the foundation of Christianity. A resurrected Jesus who defeated the grave. And let me tell you, for 2,000 years or so, people have been trying to refute the empty tomb year after year after year. You would not believe the efforts that human beings have gone through to try to prove that Jesus just fainted and kind of passed out and they put him in a grave and they didn't seal it real good and he kind of slithered out and walked around a little bit. Okay? There's there's people that have done that, that he fainted. He was in a coma, but he popped out of it. He didn't really die. And then there's the people that say this. His body got stolen from the tomb. The disciples went and stole it. That's why they put a stone over it, by the way, and they put a guard on the outside of it. And even with a stone and a guard, his body is still gone. But many said he was stolen so that this sect, this cult of people could just carry on this little tradition of this Jesus for a little while longer. And there's people to this day that still say that. But it doesn't stand. Because the gospel of Jesus Christ cannot be chained, cannot be defeated, cannot be snuffed out. It cannot and it will not ever be an ancient religion of the past that some weirdos believed for a long time. No, this stands for all time and we will celebrate a resurrected Christ in His presence in heaven for all of eternity after He comes again. Yeah, come on. You just applauded the Bible and the author of the Bible, God. That's been worth gathering this morning. And so this is the ultimate of Christianity. And I want you to understand that the disciples and Thomas embrace this as ultimate. And that's why Thomas is distraught and says, I can't believe until I see it. Because he understands the weight of the necessity of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And he's panicked because he's got a dead Savior right now. So he feels like no one else, like everyone else at that moment, he feels like maybe I'm one of these that should be most pitied. He's feeling in this moment, you know what, maybe my faith and my belief was in vain. And maybe all that I've done in walking the countryside for three and a half years with Jesus was all in vain and I should be pitied and this was just meaninglessness and I missed it. I must have missed it. And that's not the case. That's not the case at all. Because now we go to verse 26 of John 20 and I just want you to take a a look at our Christ. (laughs) I want you to see Jesus in these verses because it's incredible. Jesus... Eight days later, it tells us in verse 28, so this is Sunday, this is a week from today. This is next Sunday night. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them this time. Going to have something different happen here, aren't we? Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, 
Peace be with you. Then he says to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Man. You got to love Jesus. There's a lot of reasons to love Jesus, okay? There's a bunch of reasons to love Jesus. But don't you love that Jesus doesn't here come and say, Thomas, what are you thinking? Didn't you remember everything that I told you? He didn't say, Thomas, you're out. You've proven that you're not worthy to be one of these guys. You're out of here. Move on. I got to replace you with somebody better. He doesn't even say, Thomas, you're killing me. You're killing me, Thomas. He didn't say that. No, in his omniscience, by the way, in his omniscience, he doesn't need to be told by the disciples, hey, Thomas, he doesn't believe. No, he comes in, peace be with you, goes straight to Thomas and says, right here, brother, come on. Don't disbelieve anymore. Believe. And I'm going to tell you, that same Jesus has said that to you and maybe is saying that to you right now. If you believe in Him, Jesus Christ has come to you in some moment in this crisis of belief where you have said, okay, I believe. And in that moment, He said to you, like He says to Thomas, don't disbelieve anymore, believe. And miraculously, you do. If you're not a Christian here this morning, if you're not a follower of Jesus Christ, I absolutely believe... That because you're here this morning, He has drawn you here. And I believe through His Scriptures, He is saying to you, Stop disbelieving. Would you believe in Me? I rose from the dead. I died on a cross for you. You need this truth to be true for you. Would you believe? And I urge you, don't leave here in disbelief this morning. This is a... a, privileged moment for you where God himself is saying to you from his Bible through my mouth, but it's his word, believe in his son, Jesus, who rose from the dead and defeated sin and death so that you might live forever. That's what's happening here. That's what's happening in this gathering. That's why we've gathered. Some of us are remembering when we believed and going, yes, it's true. It's still true. And it'll be true forever. And some of you are here going, man, I've heard about this stuff. And there's some folks here that believe it. This guy that's preaching it, he sure believes it. At least I hope I'm portraying to you that I believe this. And so maybe I need to believe. And I would say, I'm praying you will have ears to hear and eyes to see and a heart to receive this truth once and for all. That you would settle your relationship with God once and for all, this morning, for all of eternity. And eternity is a long time. So, we have this Jesus scene where he goes and says, not with chastisement, not with rebuke, not even with discipline, just an appeal. Stop disbelieving and believe in me. And Thomas, as a response, utters the greatest statement that he could have actually uttered in this moment. There's, there's a lot of things Thomas could have said. What could Thomas have said in this moment? He could have said, uh, Jesus, you're alive. Uh, he could have said, oops, missed it. But no, no. Thomas says something profound. Thomas, upon discovering Jesus as resurrected with wounds, says... My Lord and my God. Let's be careful here. Let me tell you what some people have said he's doing here. Tragically, Jehovah's Witnesses will tell you that he is using the Lord's name in vain, saying, Oh my God, OMG. We know about that, right? Ten Commandments, Third Commandment, you shall not use the Lord's name in vain. That would be using the Lord's name in vain. Thomas didn't use the Lord's name in vain and just make some big declaration. OMG, that's amazing. Wow. No. No. He says, my Lord and my God. That and is a big word in that phrase. Because he could have said, my Lord or my God. 
No, he says, my Lord and my God. Nobody uses the Lord's name in vain like that. Nobody uses that and there. So let's look at these words carefully. The first word in his phrase is my. Thomas says, this is personal. This is personal. I'm witnessing the resurrected Christ. And this has massive meaning for me. He didn't say, our Lord and our God. And Jesus taught us to pray, our Father in heaven. No, he says, my Lord. My God. You are mine. This is very personal. And if you're a believer here this morning, at some point and in some way in your life, when you professed Christ as Lord, you said, my. And he is yours to be had. And then he says, Lord. That's not some throwaway word. Jesus is Lord. He says, you are my Lord. You are my master. I am under you. He doesn't merely say, my friend. He doesn't say, my co-pilot. You know, we see these bumper stickers, Jesus is my co-pilot. No, he's not. He must be your Lord. And Thomas says, you're my Lord and you're my God. So Lord is one thing. I'm under your leadership. You direct my life. I'm going to obey you. I'm going to follow you wherever I must go to follow you. But then he says, my God. And for a Jew in the first century... To call a man God was dangerous territory. That's what got Jesus crucified. But he here attributes to Jesus Christ full deity. Jesus is God. Where's my third and fourth graders that I taught this morning in Sunday school? We talked about this, right? Jesus is God. And only God can rise from the dead. So Thomas says the most ultimate pronouncement. This is the pinnacle of the book of John. I dare say this is the pinnacle of the Bible. For a human being to say to Jesus, my Lord and my God, is the ultimate thing any one of us could ever utter out of our mouth. Do you understand this? And these words in one form or another for centuries after this, through millions of mouths, millions upon millions of mouths, people have said, basically, when they've discovered Jesus Christ and believed in Him, my Lord and my God. And until He comes again, many will still pronounce this and become one of His followers. And until He comes again, we must urge people to say to Jesus, my Lord and my God. I'm going to tell you what happened here. Jesus took Thomas, a doubting pessimist, <laughs> and transformed him into a bold evangelist. My Lord and my God is a proclamation of the gospel, and it is an evangelistic utterance. And if you've embraced Jesus Christ as your Lord and your God, you must proclaim that yes to him, but you must proclaim that yes to all that you come in contact with. Because the world is full of doubters. The world is full of skeptics. But if we, by proclaiming the truth from the Bible, present to them a resurrected Jesus Christ, that is what God will use and the Holy Spirit will use to convert a heart from a doubting pessimist to a bold, embracing evangelist. My Lord and my God, may everyone in this room at some point in their life Utter those words before Jesus Christ comes again or before you die. May everyone utter those words in this room that will hear this sermon. Those are the words that we must believe and proclaim. That's, that's Romans 10, 9, right? If you profess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and if you believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, what does it say? You will be saved. That's what we need. This is Romans 10, 9 happening in John 20. <laughs> Don't you love Scripture? We interpret Scripture with Scripture. Thomas, no doubt, has recalled everything that Jesus has said up to this point. This, my Lord and my God, is an informed statement 
He doesn't say it out of the blue. He is now, I think, recalling many things that he's heard from Jesus through the days of teaching. He's heard Jesus say, for whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. Oh, yeah. He's going, yeah, you're God. That all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. This deity of Christ language. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to all whom He will. And on and on and on. I've got them listed here. I'm not going to read every one of them, but Thomas is recalling the words of Christ and he's going, I connect that with what I'm seeing here. My Lord and my God. That's what's happening. So I urge you, read the Bible. See the evidence from Scriptures. Pray for the testimony of the Holy Spirit and the work of the Holy Spirit in your life. And I pray that you will utter, my Lord and my God. Then we look at verse 28. We're we're close here. After this, John writes, Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. And Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen me and yet have believed. Be careful with that sentence. Be careful, that gets abused. That, that's not to be interpreted that uh, you believe me, Thomas, because you've seen. Well, those that don't see me and believe are better. No, that's not what's going on here. There's not a better belief in Jesus. He's pronouncing a blessing, and let me tell you what. He's pronouncing a blessing on you and me. On you and me. I think Jesus here is glanced into the future and he is saying, Blessed are those who believe without seeing me. We have not seen the resurrected Christ, right? Anybody? Careful. (laughs) That's a scary question for a preacher to ask in a sermon, man. No, you haven't. No, you haven't. He's seated at the right hand of God right now making intercession for us. And he will come back one day. And oh, when he comes back, we won't miss him. White horse, myriads of soldiers with him. We're not going to miss that one. Donkey on triumphal entry, white horse on second coming. Okay? When he comes again, no mistakes. (laughs) Okay? We have not seen the resurrected Christ. We have not seen this with our eyes of physical eyes. We see them through the eyes of faith. And Jesus says here, you've seen me, Thomas, with your physical eyes, and great, but how blessed are those that will see me and believe without seeing physically. He's talking about us. This is like Jesus in John 17, 20, when he prays in the upper room, or actually I think he's outside of the upper room with the disciples. He says, Father, I pray not only for these but also for those who will believe in me through their words. He's praying for his apostles. John, Matthew, Thomas. I'm praying for those who will believe in me through their words because he was inspiring John to write the Gospel of John. We today in 2014 read the Gospel of John and we believe in a resurrected Christ. We're blessed. Because we see through faith. Because we, when we believe, are given the Holy Spirit that allows us to see things that we can't see without the Holy Spirit. And so Jesus here is saying, you and I and millions upon millions upon kajillions of people. Revelation says there will be myriads of myriads in heaven and thousands of thousands. I don't know how many myriads are, but it's more than thousands. And it's many myriads. Many have seen without seeing. Peter wrote this. Peter 1, 1 Peter 1, 8 and 9. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, attaining the outcome of your faith. The salvation of your souls. So Peter's writing around 60 AD to persecuted Christians and saying, you didn't see the resurrected Christ, but you love him. You love him even though you didn't see him. And though you don't now see him, you rejoice in him. That's true for us if we 
have said my Lord and my God to him. So Thomas is a part of a chain, if you will. Thomas's profession, my Lord and my God, was a testimony, an eyewitness testimony to the resurrected Christ. Then God, in the next step of the chain, says, John, I need you to write something for me. And the Apostle John wrote John 20 for us. And then we get to the third step of the chain where in the first and second and third and 15th centuries, people read this gospel and they believe. And then we get to 2014 and we read this and we believe and on and on and on in generations after us, there will be multitudes of generations that believe because it was written. And that's what I want to land on. Look now in verse 30. Here's how John closes this section. And this is the purpose that John even wrote this whole gospel. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. I just got to pause for a minute. Wouldn't you love to see what that was? Many things were done that I haven't had time to record. But these are written so that, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in His name. Blessed are those who believe without seeing. Blessed are those who believe by reading. By reading. What a gift. What a gift this is. That God would have men inspired by the Holy Spirit to write to us Thomas's encounter with the resurrected Christ for the purpose that we would believe it and have eternal life now and forevermore. So lighten up on Thomas. I think you and I would be just like Thomas if we had witnessed that horrific cross. And if we knew that Joseph of Arimathea had put him in a tomb and rolled this big stone over and that there's guards and everything, I think we'd be there with him too. But I urge you, read the Word, believe what it says, and as a result, say often to Jesus in prayer, My Lord and my God. Let's pray. Father, we, we worship you this morning and we revel in the truth that the tomb was empty. You are so gracious to us, Father, to send your only son, your one of a kind son, to die in our place, to be buried so that it was proven he was good and dead and to rise him on that third day. So that death is defeated and we can have eternal life. That's what it means, Father, to have eternal life. Jesus defeated death. And so we, through belief, can live forever and never be subject to death. Father, we thank you that you have inspired John to write this so that we, in 2014, can read this true historical event. And I pray that through reading it and embracing it, we would believe it. Father, I thank you that our faith is not in vain. I thank you that my preaching is not in vain. That as your truth is proclaimed faithfully from the Bible, you are glorified and lives and hearts are changed. Father, help us to be bold to go forth and tell this truth so that your kingdom will grow. And I pray this for your glory. And in the name of our Christ who rose from the dead. Amen. Here's one takeaway this morning. Do you see how Jesus used flawed people to build his kingdom? Thomas is not a superhero disciple who boldly will go where no man has gone before. <laughs> he is a doubter. He is a pessimist. He is struggling to believe. And Christ goes to him gently and lovingly and graciously and says, Believe. Don't disbelieve. Believe. Thomas is not the model disciple. 
None of them are. On, on that morning of the third day, the resurrection day that Jesus had told them about three times in advance, they should have been girding up their loins and getting ready to celebrate. They should have been saying, I can't wait to go see him. Where is he? Let's go find him. But instead, they're huddled up in an upper room, hiding out from the Jews. And yet, look at what God did with these 11 at that point. He blessed them like He blesses us with the Holy Spirit. And He sent them out to go build the kingdom and to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's what He does with you and me. And some of you this morning might say, man, I am so far gone. There is no way I can be useful to Jesus Christ like Thomas was. I've done far more than Thomas. Well, go check out Paul. Go read Acts chapter 7 see the story of Paul and Saul. God uses flawed people to do miraculous things. And the miraculous thing that He uses us to do is just simple. Proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ, dead, buried, resurrected, coming again. And through those words, He will build His kingdom. And through those words, many will say, my Lord and my God. And that's what it takes to get into the kingdom of heaven. And so it's not too late for you to get serious with the Lord. It wasn't too late for Thomas. It's not too late for you. It's not too late for me. Fifteen years ago, I'd have never told you I'd be standing here doing this. I was a businessman. Now I'm a proclaimer of the gospel. You need what the resurrection of Christ offers. You need forgiveness of sins. You need victory over death. You need eternal life. If you don't have that, you'll know it. Would you come down and talk to me? Would you, if not today, call me this week? And let's set some time. I want to tell you this story through and through so that you will utter the words, my Lord and my God.